Thanks so much for checking out this podcast from Anchor Church Southwest. We really hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources, or info, please check out our website, anchorchurch.com.au. Hey guys, how are we? Uh, Arnaldo here, uh, lead pastor of, of Anchor Southwest. It's such a pleasure uh, to be here with you in your home, uh, wherever you are. Uh, these are strange times, as Courtney has already mentioned, and we want you to know that we want to be there for you as a church. So if at any point while we're here today, um, you need prayer or you need someone to connect with or chat with, please use one of the buttons available uh, and uh, someone will be in contact with you. Uh, it's good to be back regardless of the medium. Uh, thank you particularly to Matt Sparks for stepping in last week, uh, the lead pastor at Anchor City. Uh, last week while I was recovering from a pretty uh, nasty cold and I want to encourage us during this time to continue just to hang on, uh, to live out the implications um, of the gospel even in the face of unknowns. I know a lot of us are sick of not knowing, sick of restrictions, uh, sick of the anxiety that that brings, the isolation, uh, but I trust that the Lord will continue to build his church and to spread his fame. And I, I want to say this, that we need not fear a single thing, uh, for he will never leave us nor forsake us. And that's my encouragement for you today. There's still a sermon coming, but uh, I, that's my encouragement for you today. Now, we're almost at the uh, finish line of the book of Ephesians, and it's been so good. Um, last week, if you were here at Southwest, uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, we all were able to write down a couple of the things that we've been learning that the Lord has been impressing on us. And it was such uh, a joy to hear some of those reflections, to know that the things that have set my heart soaring have deeply affected you. Uh, that's a real joy uh, for uh, any preacher, any pastor, and so thank you for sharing those. Um, we have a lot of ground to cover today, so I wanna pray, and then we're gonna jump right into it. Help me pray. Father, we thank you again for your goodness to us. We thank you that you are here. Uh, we thank you that you are not bound to a building, to a location, uh, but you, uh, Lord, are everywhere. You are near to us. You are nearer to us than we are to ourselves. And so may your presence be felt now. May we be awakened to your presence and your goodness. Now be with us, we pray now. Help me to forget the things that are not going to be helpful. Help me to forget, uh, remember the things, rather forget the things that are not going to be helpful. Remember the things that will be. And I pray that you would draw people near today, uh, that they would find home in you, Jesus. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Last week, uh, as I said, Matt did such a good job walking us through the previous passage in the book of Ephesians on marriage. And today really is a continuation of last week because we're going to continue working through the household code. Now, Paul assumes the form of an ancient household code, but does something almost imperceptibly revolutionary to our modern ears. It's hard for us to hear what he is saying between the lines because we live so far removed from his cultural context. Paul uses the form of an ancient household code uh, the same way that the Greeks would have used a wooden horse to conquer Troy. Hidden within Paul's use of the code are the seeds that would subvert the entire ancient system of domineering and abusive patriarchalism. And he's going to show that by, by doing this. This is what we're going to be focusing on today, that the gospel revolutionizes 
absolutely revolutionizes the way we relate to those who our culture says are beneath us. I want to repeat that, that the gospel revolutionizes the way that we relate to those who our culture says are beneath us. Paul will use the language and the systems of his culture and turn them up on their heads. Man, Paul is a wild boy. And I pray that we have the eyes to see what the Spirit was doing there in Ephesus and the ears to hear what he wants to do in us. I pray that we would have the ability to respond to the apocalypse of Jesus. Now, I don't want to rehash everything uh, that Matt went through last week, but I want to recalibrate our thinking to the text before we get into the nitty gritty of the text. Ephesians 5.18 to 6.9 fits the description of a very familiar literary form uh, that was used in Paul's day that we have already been talking about called, probably where you're sitting now, right? A household code. And it was addressed, generally speaking, in Paul's time to and only to the patriarch, the father of the household. You would never find a household code speaking directly to anyone except the head of the house. And it instructed the patriarch, it told him how to manage the relationships in his household. And it was generally assumed that if you were a male and that you were free, so not a slave, and you were a property owner, you would have three main types of relationships that you would need to maintain. And this was the basic structure. You would, uh, the patriarch would be on top and you would have, uh, a, you'd have a husband to a wife, you would have a father to a child or children, and a master to a slave or slaves. And if you met all of the criteria of being a freeborn male landowning citizen, these are the kinds of relationships that you were expected to maintain. And the household codes were written and enacted to benefit primarily, this is so important for us to understand, they were supposed to benefit primarily the patriarch of the family, the head of the household. Biblical scholar has been, uh, Timothy Gombas has been so helpful when he says this about the, high, the household codes. He says, contemporary household codes were given for the benefit of patriarchs in that they were advised in how to manage or control their households, wives included, for their own benefit and for a stable society. In contrast to this, Paul addresses wives directly exhorting them to participate fully and willingly in the new humanity. He subverts the contemporary notion that the ordering of the household should be for the benefit of the patriarchs or for those in power. And we already saw last week that Paul couches this relationship between a husband and a wife within mutual submission. Submit to one another as you would to Christ. And it's out of that reality brought about by the gospel that wives are called to submit to their own husbands and that husbands are called to lay down their lives for the sake of their wives. See what Paul is doing, Paul is taking these household codes that were designed to prop up the patriarch and reshapes them on a new foundation of mutual submission, of sacrificial love, born out of the character of God who gave up his status, who gave up his priorities, his, 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 the prerogative that he had to hold all deity. He, he gave that up to serve us, Philippians 2 says, to save us, to bring us home. 
You see, the gospel revolutionized the way that husbands were to relate to their wives who were seen in that culture as occupying a lower social rung on the ladder. Husbands are not to use their wives for the sake of their headship, but rather they're supposed to use their headship for the flourishing of their wives, because this is what the gospel does. The gospel revolutionizes the way that we relate to those that our culture says are beneath us. And Paul moves on to this next set of relationships as he speaks to children and the father's role um, to his children. Uh, He says this in chapter six, verse one, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and your mother This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, what Paul does here doesn't seem so revolutionary at first glance. He's simply telling children to obey their parents, except for the fact that he's even even addressing children. This would be scandalous to these first century hearers. There's a historical fiction uh, novel called The Lost Letters of Pergamum, where the gospel writer, Luke, uh, who who we know as Luke, who wrote the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, he has uh, this pen pal called Antipas, who is at the beginning of the book, not a follower of Jesus, but eventually becomes a follower of the way. Now Antipas has a copy of the gospel according to Luke, and he begins to visit this house church where uh, he's asked to read portions of the gospel of Luke during their worship services. And of course, this was happening inside homes. We didn't, they didn't have church buildings the way that we know them today. One of the things that scandalizes Antipas in that story is him seeing all these different kinds of people of different races and different social classes serving one another during a meal. It was unimaginable during that time uh, that you would have a Jew serving a Greek, that you would have a father serving a child. It was unheard of and it was an affront to all that was good, all that was noble, all that was holy in that culture. In a culture where children were not to be seen or heard, Paul addresses them directly. And see, to us today in the 21st century West, where children are protected and even given respect as they should be, uh, this doesn't seem very odd to us. But in a culture where the patriarch had absolute power of life or death over his children, even to the point where when a child was born, the patriarch had it was in his right to just leave them out to die. In fact, even up until adult ages, the father had the power of life and death over his adult children. Paul is addressing children here directly. This would have taken the first, the first century listeners by surprise. They simply uh, did not afford any kind of agency to children. But Paul speaks directly to them, dignifying them as moral, moral agents who are not inferior, but are active participants in the new humanity. Nevertheless, Paul is not an anarchist. He's not uh, trying to get rid of order. The, the order needs to be maintained, but it, it's maintained not based on some kind of quote unquote inherent superiority of the patriarch, but because of who Jesus is. It says here in, in verse one, children, obey your parents in the Lord, 
for this is right. Literally, uh, Paul saying, in Messiah, because you are found in Messiah, obey your parents, for this is right. The status of the child is raised up to the point where they are afforded their own relationship with Jesus, their own ability to comprehend to the apocalypse of Jesus. And if we were to ask why, well, Paul tells us, well, because it's the right thing to do. But he doesn't just leave us there. Uh, Paul connects this command to the fifth commandment, which says this, honor your father and mother, uh, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. There are tangible benefits of a peaceful home where children obey their parents. I tell you, there are tangible benefits in a home when children lovingly and non-coercively obey their parents. I know a lot of you uh, maybe have kids who are, are too small or, or already older. Uh, check back with me in a few years, but I'm telling you, you, you know the feeling when your kids obey you because they want to. It is a good thing and it brings peace into the home. But if we thought that Paul was just going to speak to children, uh, he has other ideas here when he says in verse four, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of Messiah, of the Lord, of Christ. So yes, children obey, but fathers be gentle. Don't provoke them to anger, but have such an intentional relationship with your children, with your kids, that they are disciplined, corrected, and instructed in the ways of Jesus. Parents are parents. Paul's no anarchist, and they bear the unique responsibilities of providing, of protecting, of disciplining, of instructing their kids. And that's why at Anchor Kids, uh, we don't see this as the the, the primary context of discipleship. Our vision at Anchor Kids is to partner with you, partner with parents in the discipleship of their kids. Because uh, parents, you, you need to hear this, that your home is the primary context of spiritual formation in your children's lives. I cannot emphasize that enough. And so how do we create context in our homes for the spiritual formation for their discipleship of our children? How do we bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? I love the way that Don Everts uh, puts it in his research-based book entitled The Spiritually Vibrant Home. It's about 100 pages. I would really recommend it. Uh, whether you have kids or, or not, uh, it, it is a great resource to have. And in it, he teams up with Barna Research uh, to really tell us what the church has done and known for, for thousands of years. Uh, no shade there, uh, but uh, it, there's some empirical evidence now for what we've been doing for thousands of years. And there are three things that mark spiritually vibrant homes. The first one is messy prayers, he calls it. Meaning that we pray when we, that we should pray with our kids, but when we pray with our kids, it's going to be messy and interrupted. And often, uh, you know, I've been a father now for almost 12 years, and uh, especially during the beginning, I would get really uh, discouraged uh, at our devotions or family time or prayer because it was messy, it was short, the kids weren't paying attention. Uh, and that's because I was discipled more by seventh heaven than real life. Uh, life is messy. Prayer is messy. And prayer simply is lifting up our messy lives and our messy hearts and our messy minds to the one who loves us and who sees us. 
And so prayer is going to get messy. It's going to be a start-stop. But don't underestimate what regular time in prayer in your home will do in and for your kids. So the first one is, uh, how do we raise kids up in the Lord? One of them is, is messy prayers. The second one, I love what he calls loud tables. Uh, we not only talk to God together, but we talk to one another about God together. We, we set time to unhurriedly discuss how we are feeling and what we are learning about Jesus to form emotionally healthy children. We learn to have what, what, what's called spiritual conversations, which really is just looking at life through a gospel lens. It's connecting everything that we do and everything that we feel back to the gospel. And we do that in front of our kids, we do that with our kids. One practice that we often have at home is I'll ask the kids, uh, I'll, I'll pause it off, I'll pause TV if we're watching TV, I'll pause it often, they get, get frustrated. But I ask them, particularly my, uh, my 12-year-old, I ask them, what, what, what do you think this show is telling you about what the good life looks like? Uh, how do you think the gospel would respond to this particular show or this lesson that it is teaching us? We, we want to connect everything back to Jesus. We have loud tables. And the, the third and final one, uh, Don ever calls open doors. We invite others into our life and into our home, uh, and we allow our kids to see the way that mom and dad use their resources to bless others and to serve others. You know, there are few things that bring Catherine and I more joy than to see our gospel community pour their lives into our kids with their time, their energy, their attention, well after, quote unquote, our gospel community time is over. It brings me so much joy to see the boys playing and, and, and Evie jumping on the trampoline with, with people in our GC uh, because they, they need to see other people besides us who follow Jesus. And so if you want to bring up your kids in the Lord, uh, messy prayers, loud tables, and open doors are, are a great way to start. So dads, we, we are, moms and dads, we are to use our, our parenthood, our fatherhood, our motherhood for the sake of our sons and daughters. We're to use our place of power in the home to cultivate culture there, to cultivate an atmosphere uh, of prayer in the home, of uh, spiritual conversations in the home, of including others in the home, not for the sake of your comfort or ease, but for the sake of the formation of our sons and our daughters. Because this is what Paul's saying, remember that the gospel does what? The gospel revolutionizes the way that we relate to those our culture says are, are beneath us. And so Paul has now spoken to the way that husbands, this was last week, that husbands relate to their wives who at that time were seen as inferior to them, even ontologically. Uh, Paul couches that instruction in, in a submission that is mutual in the new humanity. Then Paul raises the dignity of children by embedding their obedience, not in their position as being children simply, but because of who Jesus is, not for the sake of the power of the patriarch of the family, but because of who Jesus, the true head of the family, is. He instructs fathers to be gentle with their kids and instruct them in the Lord. And finally, what Paul turns to here uh, of the three basic relationships that we, we spoke about earlier is that between a master and a slave. Now, before we go on, I want to pause for a moment and speak to the institution of slavery and what I think Paul is doing here in the text before we unpack it. 
Much like it was, it's difficult for us to understand the way that first century culture thought about maybe women or treated children, more so will our journey uh, in understanding how the ancient world viewed slavery. Of the three relationships, uh, maybe the way that we relate as husband and wives could be, you know, one of the most pertinent ones. But during Paul's time, this was the one. This was the one that packed the dynamite. Ephesus, uh, like many of uh, the Roman uh, Empire states, uh, would have been majority slave up to over 50% of the population could have been slaves. And the institution of slavery is something that has been a part, and I need you to hear this, it's been something that's been a part of the fabric of humanity since time immemorial. This is not to condone slavery. This is simply to state a sociological fact that just about every civilization known to humanity has seen other human beings as objects to own. Now, slaves during Paul's time were normally acquired through military conquest, uh, um, but it was never, ever, ever based on race, ethnicity, or the color of one's skin. We don't see that until much later on uh, during the 16th century transatlantic slave trade routes. And slavery, unfortunately, we need to, we need to know this, that uh, slavery has not ended. Slavery remains in our world today in many cultures and contexts. In fact, there are more slaves today in our modern world than there ever has been in the history of humanity. According to the International Justice Mission, an organization that does some phenomenal work around the world, it cites that there are over 40 million children, men, women that are beaten and raped and starved in modern slavery today. And this is something that our church must do something about. But the glaring difference is that slavery in the Greco-Roman period was a markedly different practice than what we know today or even know of the West African slave trade. Slaves were often, uh, were, were often, like I said before, acquired through military conquest. So when one tribe or people or group conquered another, they would often take their people as slaves. But another source in Paul's time of slavery was bankruptcy. In an age where there were no major centralized banks that could bail you out, loan you funds to keep your business afloat or even provide for your basic livelihood, you would sell yourself or your children into, uh, to your debtors to work your debt off. Many slaves even uh, were often, uh, uh, some were highly educated, uh, some to the point of even what we would consider a master's or, or PhD degrees, while in the vast minority, slaves were also able to buy back their freedom, a practice called manumission. Slavery was as common and embedded in Paul's culture as electricity is in ours. So much so to say that uh, slavery was somewhat an invisible practice during his day because it was. It was everywhere and therefore no one thought anything about it. It just was. Now, I'm not trying to make a case, absolutely, God forbid, I'm not trying to make a case for the institution of slavery, but I want us to be responsible readers of God's sacred scriptures and not take our modern notions of a practice such as slavery and import that into our reading. It's like when we're traveling abroad to a foreign 
culture. You would do well to learn the customs and the practices so as to not give uh, undue offense to your host culture. In one culture, what may be normal uh, could be interpreted as deep offense in, and disrespect in another. It would do us well to be good tourists and to learn as much as possible the ways, the context, uh, where these letters emerge in order that we not do harm to the text and make it try to answer questions it never meant to ask. This is what we can say. What we can clearly and emphatically say that read correctly, the Bible does not condone slavery. But we ask, so what? It's still a horrible practice. We can say that Paul doesn't condone slavery, but why doesn't he condemn slavery? And that's the million-dollar question. And as I understand it, it would have been less than useless for Paul to violently oppose Greco-Roman slavery. Instead, this is what he does. He plants the seeds of the eradication of the institution of slavery as compatible in the new creation reality. He shows us that this new creation reality that is ushered by Jesus is radically opposed to the institution of slavery because it, it democratizes the power between master and slave, as we'll see in just a moment. What Paul does here in the following verses, and he does it in 1 Corinthians and especially in the book of Philemon, is he reimagines a new reality within the old that made it virtually impossible for the institution of slavery to coexist with the new humanity in Jesus. I want to say that again. What Paul does in the following verses in 1 Corinthians and especially in Philemon is that he reimagines a new reality within the old reality that makes it virtually impossible for the institution of slavery to coexist with the new humanity in Jesus. Paul creates the context in which the institution of slavery is doomed. Greco-Roman slavery as an, as an institution rested on two vital assumptions for its survival. Violence and status. And these are the two things that Paul neutralizes in this letter. It reminds me of a, a science project uh, that we got to do, I forget, maybe third grade, fourth grade, how old are you? I don't know, I wasn't 17, eight or nine. And uh, I remember uh, our teacher got a, a candle. Uh, she lit the candle and then she puts a glass over the candle. And you should see, I mean, I remember, the, I can almost feel the amazement, the amazement filling our nine-year-old eyes. Slowly but surely, the candle went out. Why? Well, simply, the glass created an environment where it didn't put the fire out itself, but it created the context that made it impossible for the candle to remain lit. It takes the oxygen that fire needs. And what Paul does in this text, he takes the oxygen out of the institution of slavery so that it will die. He suffocates the things that slavery as an institution needed to remain embedded in the culture. And so it's intellectually lazy to say that the scriptures support the institution of slavery when in fact, the church has created the environment that made it impossible for that institution to coexist with the values of the kingdom, of freedom, of dignity, of self-agency. Now with that large caveat aside, let's jump back in to the text. Verse five, chapter six says this, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ, 
not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a free uh, a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven. Uh, knowing, uh, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Verses 5 to 8 discuss the way in which slaves, or as our translation has it, bond servants are to interact with their masters. In the same way that the first listeners would have been shocked by Paul speaking directly to wives who, are of, who were of a lower social order or kids who were definitely of a lower social order, this one would have been the most shocking to the first hearers or listeners of this letter. No household code in the ancient world would have addressed slaves directly. And so Paul, again, it's subverting the social norms of his day by doing so. And what is Paul's instruction? Work hard and don't just pretend to work hard when your master is around. And while today our, our situation is quite different in that we are not owned by another, although sometimes it can feel that way, uh, even as we choose who we, we work for, the same principle applies. Many of our jobs I know feel like servitude and we can often slack on the job and perform only when our bosses are around. It's that George Costanza vibe, right? In, in Seinfeld, uh, there's this one episode uh, that his idea of just getting through his day was to look agitated and look busy. And, and we do that. We get a clipboard if, if, you know, if, if we work in, uh, in a warehouse somewhere and we're just walking around busily, looking busy, uh, but really what we're doing is slacking. Because if we look agitated, we, we look busy. Or that hack, now that most of us, a lot of us are working from home where uh, you connect your mouse to an oscillating fan so it seems like you're online for your bosses, but really you're on your fifth episode of your fourth screening of season six of The Office on the Sofa. Uh, that's what you're really doing, but it seems like you're online because that mouse is moving. And this is what Paul is saying to us. That in Messiah, you now work as if you're working for Jesus. Your work done for your earthly boss, your earthly master in this case, is done now for Jesus. And he doesn't just command us, but he also issues a reward. He says this, knowing that whatever good we do, we actually will receive back from Messiah, from the Lord, regardless of our social status as free or slave. But this this, we, we all know that we should work hard. I don't think that's a revolutionary you know, that idea in our culture. But this is where the bomb comes. Verse 9, masters do the same to them. Like, what? What did you say, Paul? Like, you know, whoever was reading this in, in the households, in the churches of Ephesus, they, they would want to ask to stop. Read that again for us. Masters do the same to them. You see this radical thread of mutuality, this revolutionary strain of reciprocity. This is wild. Do the same to them. Masters, you serve, not as way of eye service, as people pleasers, because listen, you too are slaves of Christ. 
Render good service with a good will as to the Lord, not just to your slaves. This is absolutely out of this world. Oh, also, he says, you bet, you best to stop your threatening. And here, Paul is tightening the noose on the institution of slavery even tighter. What is it that would keep slaves in line? Namely, threats, power, violence, force. And Paul strips this away when he says this. There is no partiality with God. So you see, the two things that feed the institution of slavery are stripped of their power. Violence and status. Do not threaten. God shows no partiality. Your status means for nothing. You see, you live in the kingdom of God now. You've had the apocalypse of Jesus. You are a new human. And in this world, the social status of slave is now everyone's in Christ. Every person is called to serve. You lead now not with a tile, but with a towel. So masters, you serve too, because while the world has fooled you into thinking that you are ontologically superior to those who serve you in the human sense, in the human sense, Paul says, God him, like, no, wake up. You have a master in heaven. They have a master in heaven. And he's not giving you any VIP treatment just because you own a crib and some donkeys. You have to get this. You both have a master in heaven, and he shows no partiality. And in this way, Paul, Paul's, Paul's smart. In this way, Paul dismantles from the inside out the institution of slavery. But no one here, uh, I believe, that is listening or, or with us here today is a, is a slave, and no one here is a, is a master, but we are employees. We are managers, we are bosses, and the same applies to you in every industry. There's this, this social ladder that our culture tells us to climb. And if you belong, if you belong to one particular quote-unquote class, you're treated in a certain way. But what would it look like that because you are a follower of Jesus to treat those who society tells us are beneath us as dignified image bearers of God? What would it look like for doctors uh, not just to have lunch with other doctors, but to sit with nurses and wards? What would it look like for teachers to honor their aides? What would it look like for lawyers to respect their trainees? What would it look like for the foreman to not talk down to the apprentices? What would it look like for full-time stay, uh, full stay-at-home moms to not judge working mothers? for bosses to treat their workers fairly and justly and lovingly? What would it look like to treat others with agency and dignity and respect for those, who say, uh, for those that our culture says are beneath us, the elderly or those who are differently abled, the poor or the homeless, the mentally challenged? What does it look like? to honor with dignity and love and respect those who our culture, our society says are beneath us. Those that our society implicitly regards as less than. How about those people from that particular neighborhood? I'm not gonna name any neighborhoods because we all know them, we all have them. Uh, we, we're, we're taught uh, that if you live in, in those neighborhoods, well then you're treated a certain way. Or maybe you carry in you an inherent racial bias towards people of a particular skin tone or ethnicity. 
Whatever it is, whichever culture you inhabit today, there are people that we are uh, uh, discipled, that we are uh, uh, taught to look down upon. What does the kingdom of God look like in that situation? So for those who are employed, whether your boss is a 43-year-old business manager or a two-year-old toddler, what does it look like to work as if you're working onto the Lord? And for those who are bosses in the room and who, who have to have people report to them, what does it look like for you to treat them with love and respect? Because Paul says here to do to them, in essence, what you would like to be done to you. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? It sounds like something someone really, really important said once. And it's because of this really, really important person, Jesus, namely, if you haven't caught on, it's because of him that this radically new world that we take for granted often in our society was ushered into existence. If the God we serve and worship himself became a slave, if the God we serve and worship himself wrapped in a towel, he wrapped himself in a towel around his waist to wash the feet of his betrayer and, the num and his numbskull followers. If the God we serve and worship himself let the, left the glories of heaven and emptied himself and submitted himself to a Roman cross, if he can do that, and because he has done that, he has given us the spirit to live within us, to be able to treat those who society tells us are beneath us with love and dignity and respect. You are empowered now to live this way in our world of social classes and status because that's the gospel. That's the good news that Jesus would leave his place of prominence and power to become a slave. Listen, if I'm God, maybe maybe what I'll do is I'll do like a gotcha episode on Undercover Boss, where for just maybe a couple hours or a week, I'd pretend to be, you know, one of the commoners. Uh, but that's not what God did. L listen in, in uh, what, what Paul says in the book of Philippians chapter 2. He says to the Philippians, have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ. Who? What did Christ do? Who? Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. The form of a slave. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, what did he do? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, listen to this, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If he couldn't do that. And because he has done that, and because the cross was his exaltation, and because even now he is he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, and because they have issued the Spirit into the world and poured the Spirit out on his church, we can embody this as the new humans. The gospel revolutionizes the way that we relate to those who our culture says are beneath us. And maybe you're listening in, you're here today, and you're not on this Jesus thing. You, you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus. Can I ask you what it would mean for you to consider turning 
to him today, to say yes to the invitation of following him. And all that means right now is that you would believe in your heart that Jesus, in fact, is Lord. Confess with your lips that he is Lord. And the scriptures promise us that we are sealed with the Spirit at the very moment that we say yes to Jesus. And we can begin to walk in the newness, in the, the newness of life in a world, in a new humanity, where walls come down. And there's this, this new way to be human. And we get to begin to recover our truest and our deepest longings as we follow Jesus into everything that he has for you. For the sake of your joy, for the sake of his name, of his glory, and for the sake of, of our joy, we would love to celebrate the reality that you have turned uh, to say yes to Jesus. And if that's you, we would love to connect with you somehow. There are buttons everywhere on your computer. Connect with us and we'd love to, to know that you have walked that journey with us. You know, it's been a real, a real honor and pleasure. I just want to speak from my heart to, to preach from uh, this book of Ephesians. And, and my heart really has been that we would wake up. We would wake up to the ways that our culture forms us um, in good ways and, and bad ways. Uh, and that we would wake up uh, to, to the ways that the Spirit seeks to form us as a community. That we would wake up to the apocalypse of Jesus. And if you're listening here and you think I'm talking about the end of the world, uh, apocalypse simply means uncovering, unveiling. And that you would wake up to the ways that he sees you, that he knows you, that he loves you. That you would wake up to know that we even need to pray for the kind of uh, power to even receive this love. Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians chapter 3 that we need power to understand the love of Christ for us. And, and my hope, my, my goal, our goal as a leadership team, as a pastoral staff, is that you would wake up to the apocalypse of Jesus and that you would know that you are deeply, deeply loved. One of the things that we do as a church family together to celebrate uh, what Jesus has done. Um, and I've got a little COVID safe, uh, a COVID safe uh, uh, a communion pack here, uh, but I wanna give us a time now to pull out some, some bread, some crackers, uh, some juice. Uh, I don't know what time it is, M maybe some wine, you know. Um, it's for church, it's okay. And um, uh, celebrate what the Lord has done for us. Uh, what does it mean that he emptied himself? What does it mean that he, he subjected himself to uh, the, 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 the Roman cross uh, it means that his body was, was broken for us and we find out our healing in his brokenness, uh, that his blood was poured out for us, uh, that we would have our sins forgiven, that we would have new life available to us, that we would be able to be transferred from the domain of darkness and into light. So I want to lead us into a time of, of sharing that and I want to remind us uh, what uh, the bread means. It's his body broken for us. I'll give us a moment uh, to take that now. And we take uh, juice or wine as a, as a symbol 
of Jesus' blood that was poured out for us. And this is such an, an important part of, of what we do that we, we celebrate. And we, we get together as a church, not, not simply under the word uh, of God, but we come together to, to celebrate um, an embodiment of what God has done for us in Christ. And so um, I'll give you a moment to go ahead and, and drink. Jesus said to do this in remembrance of me until I come back. And uh, we pray, we continue to pray that, that prayer in Revelation. It's the shortest and most powerful prayer I find, which is Maranatha, uh, that Jesus would come back. Uh, so bless you, church. We love you. If there's anything we can be doing for you during this snap lockdown, let us know. Um, and we hope to see you right here uh, next week. Bless you.